Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, October 28, 2013. During this week in history, in 1618, Sir Walter Riley was executed in Old Palace Yard at the Palace of Westminster. He is remembered as an aristocrat, a writer, a poet, a soldier, a courtier, a spy, and an explorer. Sir Walter Riley, rest in peace. It all started with a boy named Will. He brought happiness and smiles wherever he went. William Harold Snell died on August 4, 2008, and the world is dimmer for it. You write military I began writing more this I do, as a matter of fact. I actually have two Kickstarters running. I didn't plan it that way, but there's my personal one for my War of the Seasons novel, and then right. another anthology that I have a military sci-fi story and just launched their Kickstarter yesterday. And their Kickstarter is called War Stories. War Stories is a new sort of military science fiction anthology. It's a look at the people ordered into impossible situations, asked to do the unthinkable, and those unable to escape from hell. I'm actually really stories. excited about War Stories. It's because they asked me to submit a story based on not just like battle and combat, but you know, the effects of it. And so it was a story where I addressed PTSD without outright saying it was PTSD, right. which is a subject that I feel is infrequently touched on in the media and in speculative fiction. Yeah, nobody wants to talk about that. That's true. It was a fairly, I don't know, I guess a pretty personal piece in some right. ways. I finished it and I was really happy with it. And it's one of those few things that you write when you're done and you're just like, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I should mention, I'm a United States Marine pilot. Oh, okay. I was wondering what was your problem. I have so many friends and fellow Marines who have suffered and continue to suffer from PTSD. And I, I had a mild form of it myself. I just felt like I had a hard time adjusting back to normal life. Okay, well, why don't you tell me about the trilogy book also then? It's about a girl named Story who falls into another world, uh, literally falls into it. And it's a... She's a girl from our world, a human, and hence the first book is called The Human. And she falls into this other world called Eleonora, and it's filled with dwarves and elves and dryads and really nasty fairies that try to kill her a lot. And there's a reason they're trying to kill her a lot. And she winds up getting in this adventure, you know, kind of this quest. She finds herself on a quest that she decides to embark on, and she ends up saving a dying race. And she falls in love along the way. So, it's, you know, I like to tell people it's like The Princess Bride. There's action and adventure, but yes, it is a kissing book. Oh, okay. But there's also sword fights and, you know, people dying. And it is called War of the Seasons for a reason. Again, you have a personal story for this book also. I mean, do you do any other, you know, <laughs> than, than, than... You know, they say you write what you know. And so... And I, I'm sure you saw on the Kickstarter, but the short version for those who haven't seen the Kickstarter yet, my husband and I had a foster son named Will, who was wonderful. He was a handful, but he was wonderful. And just after my second deployment, he died in a car accident. We didn't have any other children at the time. And so he was literally the only child we had. And we were both very grief stricken. And the only way that I could figure out how to deal with it was to write a story where 
you know, a girl, you know, she loses her whole family in a car accident and, and does get a chance to say goodbye to them. And, and the story has slightly deeper, the background has Katie Johnson, who is also mentioned in the Kickstarter. She and Will, our foster son, though there were some years between them, they were friends. And Katie, unfortunately, it very sadly died a few years prior to Will of a brain tumor. And so they were together very much during her last couple of days. And he used to, you know, without hesitation, the first time they met, she was like, here, try my nasty medicine. And so, you know, without thinking, of course, 13 year old boy that he was totally did. And so they instantly bonded. And he presented her with her honorary membership to the 501st, which is pretty much the premier Star Wars costuming group. Whenever Lucasfilm needs stormtroopers to show up anywhere, these are the guys that do it. And Will always wanted to be a member of the 501st. And so we have lots of pictures of him in his stormtrooper armor. And you can't join until you're 18. And he just turned 18. He was getting ready to join. And he died in his car accident. And so so Alvin Johnson, who was Katie Johnson's father and also the founder of the 501st, got Will inducted into the 501st posthumously within like a day. Like he had stormtroopers at Will's memorial service. We also had a little droid, R2KT, which was a, basically a pink version of R2D2 that Katie loved and named for her, it was also at his memorial. It was all very geeky and wonderful. And so these two, Katie and Will, play a very, they're a very small role in the book, but they're a very important role. And Eleanor has just been a nice place where I can put people who are very special and important to me where they can live on because I don't want to say goodbye to them yet. I'm not ready to. Thanks for telling me that. Very sad story. But you've found a way to turn that sad story and deal with the grief. So that's a positive, I think. I, I can't think of a person out there who hasn't had to, at some point in their life, deal with the death of somebody that they are close to. Everybody has to deal with it in their own way. But I've had so many people talk to me about how appreciative they are to read a story where somebody does suffer a big loss like this and they don't just bounce back like, okay, I'm fine. I'm just going to go on with my day. It's not something that just goes away overnight. And yes, you can be happy again. And yes, you can have adventure and romance and all these great things, but you will still always, you know, carry these people in your heart. And the good news is, you know, eventually you, you stop being upset and crying about it all the time. You'll always miss them, but eventually your memories become happy memories more often than sad ones. Check out this trilogy. Check out the the last book in the trilogy, War of the Seasons, right? Yep, War of the Seasons. It's on Kickstarter. They're doing well, but they they have not given up on extra money. So, you know, I'd like to congratulate them on funding, but they're still accepting pledges. So go to kickstarter.com and type in War of the Seasons. And if you can't find it there, Go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links for War of the Seasons and for Silence in the Library Publishing. Janine, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let me introduce myself. I'm Alex Atkinson. Together with my dad, Peter Atkinson, we are creating this project. I'm a student studying business, physics, and maths at A-level. I'm hardworking, dedicated, no. and reliable. How's it going, dude? Uh, all right, you look all presentable, tie, business-like. Okay. Yeah, this is uh, my uh, college uniform. Okay, college uniform. What college do you go to? I go to uh, Tunbridge Wells Grammar School for Boys in England. 
Is that a university or? It's a sixth form college, so. A college for sick boys, what? No, it's a sixth form college. What does that mean? I don't know. In England, when you're in years 12 and 13, I'm not sure how that translates into grades, you uh, go to a sixth form, which is kind of a, almost an in-between stage between high school, as it were, and university. Oh, middle school or something or something. Sort of, yeah. So I see you, you've been this uh, local celebrity, homeboy, uh, local boy makes good for a while <laughs> at age 16, starting companies, you know, running yeah. companies and, you know, hostile takeovers and stuff like that. <laughs> you could say that, yeah, it's been a good right. fun, gotten lots of support from school and all that sort of thing. Now, what's your latest project? Well, our latest project is uh, Infraction, which is the Crime Wars card game I've launched on Kickstarter. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting talking to uh, lots of suppliers, working with my dad to uh, try and get this thing ready to really power through to Kickstarter. Now, what sold me on your story is the dad angle. I like the kid angle, 2 to 16, but the dad, <laughs> father and son working together. Do you still like each other now that you've worked together and put this company yeah, together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, we still like each other. My uh, dad lives up in London, so he's got all the uh, business contacts, as it were. So you moved out of the house after joining Kickstarter? You got kicked <laughs> no, out? No, no. My parents are separated, so I, I still live with my mum. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry to bring up bad news, man. Sometimes. No, that's no problem. Okay, so this infraction game, it's kind of like a... Kind of like a spy game or something, kind of like that. You got uh, mercenaries you say, and stuff. I'd say a crime wars orientated game. So it's based around the two main factions, which is the Alfonso Rosso Mafia and the Draki Long Triad. So the story of the Mafia is quite popular. And then so is the uh, story of kind of the Eastern Triad. So I thought we'd uh, take that into about 2025. 2025 in the future. Yeah. We thought the um, Mafia and the Triad, kind of those sort of crimes are quite cool and the style is quite awesome. So we wanted to uh, take it to uh, 2025 in the future to sort of be able to create our own history and our own angle on it and make it bigger scale. So it made sense that the Triads were fighting the Mafia. For some reason, I feel as though you're trouble. You get into trouble a lot. No, I don't get into trouble at all. I feel as though you do. I think the tie... And the, the uniform is just a cloak, a disguise, hiding the real clandestine personality that you have. Yeah, it's a, it's a front for my uh, mafia business. That right, I, uh, there you <laughs> go. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm, no, I'm, I'm perfectly uh, reliable and I'm a good student getting uh, fairly reasonable grades and working hard to try and make his own in uh, this kind of tough business job environment. Things are hard everywhere, man. Things are hard everywhere. Yeah, definitely. Are you an optimistic type of cat? Always optimistic, always trying to aim higher and then reaching it if I can and all that sort of stuff. If I'm talking to a gamer, which yeah. you are, is this game any fun? That's really the bottom line of any <laughs> game to me, man. Is this game any good? This game is great. We've obviously, we haven't got all the printing or prototypes, but what we have is the prototypes that I've made through myself. So testing the game, repeating it. So the game's gone through loads and loads of um, development. So there was a card called a mission card, which we had in the game. And that, right. that was scrapped from the game because it was no fun. And then we added these new cards and shuffled everything around. And it's constantly being tested and updated. So we do have rules on the uh, Kickstarter page, but 
they're not the final, final rules, as it were. Right. They are the uh, beta rules. Now, how old are you? I'm 17. And even though you're 17, is this the type of game where you have like two or three people sitting around and you guys got cigars in your mouth, you know, smoking, <laughs> and you got stacks of chips and dice and stuff like that? You know, I'm, I'm thinking mafioso, players, ballers, <laughs> man. Is it that type of game? The mafia are the ones who are going to be doing the smoking, first of all. But the, <laughs> okay. uh, the game is a very kind of... Um, almost role-play style game, but you uh, I can only think to describe it in, as comparing it to other games such as uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon and Magic. It's this faction fighting game to see who's the best. And you, uh, there is an in-game currency and that sort of thing. But first of all, it's a faction-based game where you take the role of a major crime boss and battle it out with your friends to see who's the better crime boss. For anyone out there, you want to try a game out in Fraction, it's about... What's it about? It's about intrigue. It's about cartels, mafioso, all of that sort of stuff. I'm still thinking it should be like, you know, you kicking back with a stogie and some chips and, you know, a few <laughs> drinks on the side and dice and stuff. But it may not be that. So you better go to the Kickstarter thing and read for yourself. It's Infraction, I-N-F-R-A-C-T-I-O-N. And if you can't find it there, always go to djgrandpa.com we'll post links for Alex and his mafioso buddy Alex thanks for coming on the show thank you very much DJ Grandpa on this week's meet the crowd meet Ron Greenfield an accomplished speaker author and an expert in the entertainment industry welcome Ron well, thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I'll, I'll just give you a brief how this came to be. As I started my website, aspectofentertainment.com, right. this was sort of like a natural progression out of it. And I thought, okay, what could be useful to people who are just beginning their careers? And I just didn't want to have full-fledged professionals who've been doing this 20, 30, 40 years in the book and basically, I asked a series of questions to people who are just starting out a few years in their careers or are still in school. I sort of ran the whole spectrum. You know, this way I felt people can connect with that way. You know, like they say, I've been there or they made the road a little easier for me. Right. And they give their own unique perspective, you know on how they see the industry and their particular field of interest. And the questions were basically all the same to each interview. However, I did tailor them based on the person's experience. Like I have someone who's still in school to somebody who's been doing this for well over 30 years. I also cover everything from gaming to entertainment law in the book. You know, that's also one of the purposes of the book. It's not just about film actors, plays, dance. This is such a creatively rich industry. There are so many ways people right. can express themselves. And the attorney, he's there for artists' rights. You know, I have gaming from people who are just starting out to some who are very well experienced and very well known. I talk about international distribution and development. There are actors, there are directors, screenwriters. Also, one of the areas of the industry that I work in is new media where, you know, you do the featurettes or the people who produce the trailers 
And the book is called Perspectives on Entertainment, Pursuing Our Passion. It's available on iBooks or the iBook store, and it's also available on Amazon. And also, an offshoot that came about of that is, and I'm just preparing the second edition of it, is a magazine version of Aspects of Entertainment.com on the Apple Newsstand app. And this one, I'll be able to have a lot of more rich media. So it'll have links to see musicians in actual performance and things like that. When you and I first spoke, you told me that you've seen many stars in their infancy that have become big, right? Right. And everybody wants to be big in some sort of way, whether they're a gamer, an author, or a publisher, any of these people who come to Kickstarter with their inventions, and they're, they're essentially trying to build a base. And you told me there were certain qualities that you saw in all of these people, Brad Pitt, the guy from ER, George Clooney, Reese Witherspoon. James Gandolfini. They all had certain characteristics which made them yeah. stand out in a crowd. And that's what you're essentially trying to do when you're crowdfunding. Stand out in a crowd. You're asking people that you don't know to invest money in your idea. And I want to know, in your experience, what are these characteristics that are so important for you to make it in this industry? When you start out, and you could be an actor, you could be a director, you could be a cinematographer, it really doesn't matter. Everybody has to answer this question for themselves. What is my purpose and what is my intention? All right. What do you really want to do? And you sort of have to put aside what everybody else is telling you what to do, what you should be doing. This is that voice you have to listen to inside yourself. And this is especially true, I found, with creative people. Creative people have a voice unlike any other. They see the world differently than a lot of other people, let's say, if you're a doctor or an attorney. Creative people see it through their lens. Like a lot of people I interviewed who want to be directors or are directors or whatever, they see the world through film. There's a movie playing in their head, and that's how they see the world, and this is their purpose. The way they express themselves, the way they have their true voice, they know this is their purpose. The second part of this is, in anything you do, but we're talking particularly about the entertainment industry, you have to be passionate about what you do. You have to love it. You know, I know these guys up in Massachusetts, they started the Massachusetts Independent Film Festival. They live, eat, and breathe film. This is what they're passionate about. You talk to them, they're talking about all these directors. This is what they do. And I would say the third part, DJ, is nothing happens right off the bat. Sometimes it does, but that's the food. And so the third part of this is you really have to be persistent. You know, because it's not like you're walking through an English rose garden all the time. There are going to be obstacles. There are going to be some potholes. There are going to be setbacks. But that's the time when you really have to show your mettle. And that's the time is you have to sort of work through it and go on to your next level. And especially in this industry, I've seen it, and it's sometimes very difficult with actors, in that you go into an audition and they say no. Okay, so what do you do? How do you take in that no and say, okay, this is just a no? Do you let it put you back? Or you say, you know what? 
just gives me the opportunity to go forward and I start going forward at a higher level. And the thing that you have to do is this is something you have to ask of yourself. Creative people, it's a constant process. You know, you just can't do it willy-nilly. You know, it's a, a process of constantly learning and improving and building upon. That's basically how you build your foundation in anything you do, especially in this industry, because that's how you're going to learn and that's how you're going to grow. What about where everything is right now? Almost every film interview that I do or someone who's related to the film industry talks about how it's almost at the same point in time where the music industry was 15 years ago, where they're trying to find their space. They're trying to find a model that works. I mean, is that true? I think so, because in North Carolina, where I live, God knows, I don't know, there has to be at least 30 film festivals throughout the year. So if you multiply that across the United States and then you take in the world, do you know how many film festivals are showing film? And then you have YouTube, you know, where people can just upload their videos. Now, I'm not talking about the quality. You know, I'm just saying visual things being put out there. Right. It's staggering. Also, if you think about Hollywood, you know, here, let's take an example of DJ. This past summer, you had what they call these tentpole movies. Everything was a big fuss. These films cost $200 million plus. I think last March, Oz the Great and Powerful, close to $300 million. The Lone Ranger, totally bombed, also close to $300 million. The industry cannot support that. I mean, how long can you go on producing these $300 million films? You know, in a certain way, it's very obscene to spend that kind of money on a film. But the other thing is, it has to do with the quality of the film. And also, and by the quality, not so much how it's shot and all the effects, but at the end of the day, if you look at the history of Hollywood, the films that have lasted over all these decades, not so much about effects, but it's a story that people can connect with. There has to be a story that you can connect with. If you can't do that, all the effects is not going to help. Right. I'll give you an example. This past summer, I was at the movies to... I forgot which film I went to see. All right, so, and you know, when we see a movie, usually there's going to be about five or six trailers. Right. The first trailer was, like, some kind of sci-fi background CGI, you know, produced. I said, okay, I get it. Next one, I think it was White House Down with Jamie Foxx and Channing Tatum. There was a, a scene that they used in the trailer. They're walking towards the screen. I think they had guns in their hands, and then a building blows up behind them. Right. Next movie was Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. Again, they're walking towards the screen, holding guns. A car blows up behind them. And I'm thinking to myself, am I watching the same picture here? You know, right. it was just like, I was not seeing anything original. Then in the middle of all these films, and it was a film I really wasn't familiar with, was The Butler. And then I'm thinking, oh, thank God, a film about a real person. Something like a story. Something people can relate and connect to. And I think if you want to talk about studio-produced films, I think that's one of the things they have to connect to. I think they got so blown away with all the CGI and all effects that they miss why people go to the movies in the first place. 
This is where DJ Grandpa gets to say to be continued. Ron shared so much great information with me during our interview that I had to cut it into two segments. So stay tuned for next week. Ron Greenville, part two. That's an incredible project that you're undertaking on Kickstarter. Thank you. It's been in the works a long time. How long is a long time? Since like 2008, uh, in earnest, I guess, in earnest, on a, on a regular basis. But the, the idea goes back to 2003. You know, the, the timing with the music industry, the music industry kind of uh, imploded. So that had a lot to do with it as well. I've been reading up on your gentleman there, Blind Willie Johnson. Yeah. An incredible story. Yeah, very interesting story, and he's a very seminal figure. He, he goes back to early recorded blues and gospel music and uh, kind of a very unique figure. Most musicians, you can trace their musical lineage, but really Blind Willie Johnson, you can't trace his musical lineage. He's a, a unique player and um, kind of a, alone by himself. Yeah, that is massive. I do have some CDs by him, I believe. Plus several of the people that you have slated to record, you know, some of his songs like Susan Tedeschi and... Derek Trucks. The um, Blind Boys of Alabama. Got a lot of CDs by several of the people that are proposed for the album, so that's pretty incredible. I'm very excited by the lineup. So uh, we've got a lot of great artists. Tom Waits, and he's agreed to do two tracks. And um, Lucinda Williams... I love music, man. I'm the world's biggest music fan. I usually would just ask you questions about the guest, you know, Blind Willie. But you kept saying in the video that he had a message for his generation as well as that you believed that he had foresight, that he had a message for future generations. So I was like, huh, why does he keep, why does Jeffrey keep putting it like that? That's something that stands out to me about his music. You know, it's not blues music, it's gospel music to a blues uh, melody. He brought uh, that blues thing to the gospel thing, and he's right there at the intersection of blues and gospel. And, and he had some real, uh, I think when you listen to his music, you can hear his conviction. Yeah, and to me, he's speaking out to us today. He's not just uh, speaking with conviction, he's speaking out to the future. I think that, you know, today we take recording for granted, and um, you know, anybody can record anything at any time. But, uh, you know, at that time, it was real privilege to be recorded. So I think he was, uh, you know, as I say in my video, keenly aware that people would be listening to it in the future. You just didn't mean that he was preaching the word of God. You meant that there was also another message also. He was definitely preaching the word of God. And uh, he was a street corner evangelist. And he had a house of prayer in Beaumont. 
where he died that burned in uh, 1945. So um, there's some question as to his earlier years whether uh, he was what they call a songster, someone who played blues and gospel. But uh, as far as recording goes, it seems to be, you know, strictly wow. spiritual material. You're gonna need somebody You're gonna need somebody on your farm. God is away, turn to midnight, when death comes slipping in your room. I heard that he only recorded 30 songs that they know of. And that's it, 30 songs and uh, I believe four recording sessions. He recorded in, uh, in Dallas and in New Orleans and in Atlanta. And some speculation that there were some later recordings uh, in Beaumont, but they don't seem to exist anywhere, so it's just uh, hearsay. Going into this project, before I spoke to you, I thought that I was going to be speaking with the Blind Willie aficionado. I thought that that was the role that you were undertaking with this project. So if you're not the Blind Willie aficionado, how did you get the project? Back in 2003, I was finishing up a project. Uh, got to serve somebody the gospel songs of Bob Dylan. And uh, a friend had turned me on to Blind Willie. And uh, it was something I became interested in. And, of course, I was aware of a few of his songs. Probably a lot of people, uh, although they may not know it, know one or two of his songs that they've heard before someone else recording. And that was kind of where I was coming from. But uh, when I heard the whole story, I just became fascinated. And I uh, made my way down to Texas. I was going to New Orleans to Jazz Fest, and I went to Beaumont in 2003, and I started poking around Beaumont where uh, he was when he died and uh, pulled his death certificate there and found my way to the cemetery and, and then continued my obsession with, with him, and, and uh, it led to this project. I guess my last question would be, what has held this project up so long? I know you talked about the imploding of the music business. Maybe that's just the answer right there. The music industry has gone through uh, a transition and is going through a transition. And uh, at the time that I tried to bring this to the record labels and have been bringing it to the record labels, uh, it was not a time and it is not a time where um, they would support something like this because a project like this would not uh, recoup what it costs to make. Everybody was very excited about the lineup of artists, about Blind Willie Johnson, and people thought it was a great project. And I got uh, a hearing from everybody. Uh, it wasn't a problem to uh, get consideration, but uh, the end result was always the same, that we'd love to do it, but we just can't. For anyone out there who loves blues, who loves gospel, who loves the intermingling of two different genres of music, and at a seminal time in recording and music history, well, American music history, you should check out this project. Let me, let me look and see what the name of the project is, though. It's called God Don't Never Change, The Songs of Blind Willie Johnson, and it really wouldn't be made if it wasn't for the artists who are participating and uh, championing the cause as well because they all have a passion for Blind Willie Johnson and um, I'm really grateful to them for being part of the project and for being willing to uh, allow me to take it to Kickstarter. I couldn't have said it as well as you just did. I, I don't even know why you let me try. I couldn't have said it that well. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have a hard time finding it on Kickstarter, 
check out djgrandpa.com, the world's biggest music fan, and we'll have links for Jeffrey and his project on Kickstarter because that is a long title and I don't think I could pull it off as well as he did the first time. Jeffrey, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing okay. Journey to the Middle Kingdom. You ready to tell a nice story? Oh, yeah. You're a teacher, right? Yes, math and science. And you have a kind of a long background with being immersed in Asian cultures. Yes, I studied Chinese and Japanese in university and then lived in Korea after I graduated for a while, teaching English as a second language. Well, I saw on your Kickstarter video that you were talking about some sort of, uh, was it calligraphy about the brushes and magic? Yeah, those are calligraphy brushes. Why don't you tell me what Journey to the Middle Kingdom is all about? Journey to the Middle Kingdom is a story of three American high school students who are sent back in time. They're plucked out of their everyday life, and they're sent back in time to this mythical world of Chinese fairy tales. And to get back home, they're going to have to figure out who or what mysterious force is trying to wreck Chinese history. So it's going to be a series, and each book will have to go from one Chinese fairy tale to another, and they're going to have to figure out how to fix whatever is wrong with it. Each book is going to be a retelling, a modern retelling, of famous Chinese fairy tales for an American audience. The first one I picked was called Legend of the White Snake Maiden, which is about a 700-year-old Chinese fairy tales, one of the top four most famous Chinese fairy tales there are, but it's probably not well known to an American audience. But it's a story of eternal love, hatred, revenge, jealousy, and loyalty. Right. So it's about a white snake maiden who falls in love with a mortal man, and their love is forbidden by the laws of heaven. Demons and humans cannot be together. However, their love is stronger than the law, and they get married and eventually have a child. Eventually, an evil monk named Fahai does disapproves of their union and breaks them up. He traps the white snake maiden forever in a pagoda overlooking a lake so the two lovers will never be together. Eventually, the white snake maiden's friend, the green snake maiden, comes back, gains enough power, defeats Fahai, and frees her friend so that the two lovers can be reunited. However, when the three high schoolers in the story, when they go back in time, they're right smack dab in the middle of the story, and the green snake maiden is nowhere to be found, so the white snake maiden is still trapped in her tower forever. Are these three Americans? These three, yeah, three American high school students. Okay, well, how are they going to know how to intervene, you know, to make right what's wrong. Well, they're going to have to learn as they go along, just like with the calligraphy brushes. They're gifted these magic calligraphy brushes where if you write a Chinese character in the air, whatever you write becomes real. Right. So if you were to write the Chinese character for fire or water, it would be magically created for you. They get a guide. They get a young phoenix, a small phoenix that helps them out with the journey and access their guide. It's called the Middle Kingdom, so I'm figuring there's some, like, king or queen or emperor or something. The word for China in Chinese is actually Middle Kingdom. It's called Zhongguo. Zhong means middle. Guo means kingdom. So the Chinese actually called their country China the Middle Kingdom. 
it is the middle of their world. Oh, okay. So when I say journey to the Middle Kingdom, it's really journey to China. Now, who has bestowed these brushes with all sorts of magical powers? Well, the Jade Emperor is the king of Chinese heaven. He's the highest being in the Chinese pantheon of gods. And he is the one that has brought them back through time and also gifted them these magical calligraphy brushes and sent them on their journey. Is there any martial arts, fighting scenes, any action in it? Oh, lots. The main character is a martial artist. Jason, the one in the middle of the cover, is a martial artist himself. And they go through many different areas where they'll have to use both their brains and their brawn to solve problems. Well, I can't think about, like, magical China without, like, dragons and stuff. Oh, yeah. There's lots of mythical creatures. There'll be water dragons, shadow dragons. I get to use all of Chinese folklore and myths at my disposal. Okay. So I, they get phoenixes, and the guy is a phoenix, but they'll encounter many different kinds of monsters and magical creatures on their way to figuring out what mysterious force is threatening Chinese history. Now, for anyone out there, I think it's cool to learn about other cultures, and I think it's cool, you know, journey to the Middle Kingdom, journey to China. So I think you should go check it out on kickstarter.com. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links for Jonathan. And he's very nice, very stylish, man. Kind of cool. It looks laid back, even though you said there's all this action and adventure and romance and all those sort of things. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. My name is Rebecca Lovett. My co-editor, Roger Bellini, and I love fantasy. In fact, we love it so much that we have spent our time putting together an anthology that rekindled our passion and excitement for the genre. My name is Roger Bellini. I'm the editor of Neverland's Library. And your project on Kickstarter is what? My project on Kickstarter is an anthology called Neverland's Library. And what it is is 20 stories based around the theme of rediscovery. All the authors we've already paid, I actually paid them out of pocket. And what we're trying to do is raise the money so that we can do a solid first printing and be able to offer the book to local stores and at a reasonable price so that they can actually put it on the shelves and be profitable for everyone involved. Now, I saw on your Kickstarter the the girl, the saleswoman, the pitcher. Yeah. She says that you guys just love fantasy, dragons, and all the things that come with it. Yeah, I've been reading fantasy since I was, gosh, since I was old enough to pick up a book. The first book that I can actually remember reading straight through was Lord of the Rings. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I started in the morning and I didn't finish until the next morning. I read it from cover to cover. And uh, when I was done, I was sleep deprived and quite hungry. <laughs> Those are all signs of an addict. I, I can, yeah, I can tell. That. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of that. <laughs> I'm not asking you to be ashamed. I, 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 I am an, an addict of many things. So I, I understand that, you know, I understand. But I, I'm just saying there's always a price for being an addict. I guess that's all I'm trying to couch that with. Definitely. No doubt. I don't know how many times I went to work the next day with eyes that are sore because I couldn't pull myself away from a book. Like uh, one of our authors, uh, Mark Lawrence, his book, Prince of Thorns, when I first got that book, I read it in a day and I started reading it probably around 10 p.m., which is the worst time to start a book because if you love the book, you're stuck. Your next day of work, you're just done. (laughs) You walk around like a zombie. I know, but you know, most people pull themselves away. Most people will pass out. <laughs> <laughs> Is this your first anthology you put together? 
This is my first anthology, but it's going to be far from my last. What else should I know about this book? Are there any um, heavy hitters on it? Are there any people like you should name drop or something if I am a literary type? The biggest name is The Introduction, and that's Tad Williams. Uh, we're not quite big enough to get a story from him just yet, but he was kind enough to offer up an introduction, which is basically where you set the tone for the anthology of stories coming up. Then our headliner with actual story is Mark Lawrence. He did a story called Deception, which is all about an angel falling down to earth and um, bringing the truth of, of what human existence is. That story is especially uh, powerful. And then there's R.S. Belcher, um, Marie Brennan, who does A Natural History of Dragons by Tor Books. And she's got covers by Todd Lockwood, and I'm so jealous of that. <laughs> if you're a fan of pulpy horror-type stories, we have William Michael, who's done a lot of work with um, Dark Fuse and Dark Region Press. Now, let's see, who else is there? We actually have some really good people who uh, do mostly just short fiction. Right. They're branching out to doing novels. Uh, Keith Bouvier has one of my favorite stories. It's called uh, Firewalker, and it's about a, a father and a son who discover a dragon. And basically what they do is uh, apply the scales to his body. And it's really interesting to see how that affects his life down the road. Right. You said that you review a lot of books and stuff? I do. Um, what happens is I started a blog last year and it caught on, started getting a lot of followers. Eventually, I got the crazy idea of contacting publishers and letting them know that, you know, I was available to review books. So what happens is if there's a book that I want to read, I let the publicist know. They send it to me. I read it and I review it before it's out. A lot of times those reviews then get shared by the authors. And um, I even have one that actually ended up on, well, hoping it ends up on the back of a cover. As of right now, it looks as though that is the case. But it'll be pretty cool to see uh, my review listed on the back of an actual book that'll be in shelves of stores. Right. Okay. So you started this blog and, and then you get into reviews and then you get the books. So now like it's almost like the next stage you become a publisher. So you, you go from this kind of like book hound to reviewer to now publisher. You are actually exactly right. I went from an avid reader to a reviewer. And as a reviewer, I actually started meeting a lot of the authors because I was doing interviews and I was, you know, I was helping to promote their books. So they knew I had an interest in their careers. And then eventually I had an idea for a book. And when I pitched it to them, they stepped up to the plate and they really answered the call and helped it become not just an idea, but actually a, a book that's going to happen with all authors that are published and amazingly talented. I'm not going to lie. I'm extremely lucky to be working with the group that I have assembled. Does this mean that you don't sleep? <laughs> I sleep just uh, in small bursts. I used to do volunteer firefighting, so I got really used to power napping. Right. And it's a very effective system for when you have limited time. Well, I'm very happy for you, man. And, and I see that you just can't stay still. You're hard to hit, man. You're a person who's hard to hit. And that's okay. Well, it's funny. It's hard to hit. I actually did boxing for a couple of years. You'd never guess it with this baby face, but, you know, I'm bouncing around the ring. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about having a baby face is you just have to protect it a little more. <laughs> that's all. Oh, that's true. It's a gusher. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. All right. And with that, um, I'm very happy. I'm thankful that you gave me a chance to talk to you. I want to tell everybody out there who, who's listening, anyone who really likes Kickstarter the way I do, I want you to go and check out Neverland's library on Kickstarter and check out the pitch girl. She's there. She does a good job. Who is the pitch girl anyway? Why is... She's not just the pitch girl. She's actually uh, my co-editor. 
And right. he's also my girlfriend. Okay, so he, he has the pitch girl who's the co-editor, who's also the girlfriend. Go there, check it out, check them out. See if you'd like <laughs> to contribute. And, Don't check much. <laughs> and if you can't find links for them there, always go to djgrandpa.com where we'll post links for Roger and Neverland's Press. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about my project. I appreciate it. Hi, my name is Stavros, and I'm the creator of Standy, a small, modular keychain stand. Standy can support most tablets and phones in either the landscape or portrait positions. I look pretty crazy. You don't look that crazy, man. <laughs> I'm sure I look crazy. My hair is like all over the place, man. All right, now where are you at? Uh, I live in Astoria, Queens. Now, the standy, man, I normally don't do devices like this, man, but then I saw, I actually looked at your video, and I thought it was pretty cool, man. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I didn't realize the potential of it just by looking at the picture, you know? Hmm. You judge a book by its cover or something maybe like that, you know? I don't know. I was on a tight budget, so I kind of had to do the video pretty much. I did everything on the Kickstarter page myself, mm -hmm. so it, uh, it took some time, but I learned a lot from it. I think it's unique, actually. You know, because of the, just the size of it and stuff, and that it's like a keychain. So I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Honestly, it's hard for me to judge a Kickstarter without a video. And I'm seeing a lot of Kickstarter projects that go the no video route, and it's mm -hmm. like, that turns me off immediately. We do make exceptions because sometimes I'm wrong, you know? But, so thank you for putting that video, man. I would have never... I'd have never done your project out of the video, man. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Everybody, everybody has to have their personality flaws, man. It's just one of mine. When I did the video, I started <laughs> recording myself, and I went, "Really? That's what I look like?" Okay, I have to cut this out real quick and just put myself for like two seconds, and then I'll just focus on the standee and not put myself in there. You know, just like um. You don't really understand what you sound like until you record yourself. Well, it's the same thing about what you look like as well. That's true, man. But you look like a normal guy to me. So I'm like, I'm like, I don't, don't judge see a book it. by its cover. I wanna, okay, you got me. You got me. Touche, touche. You got me. You know, the interview is never supposed to be about me. So maybe you should tell me what the standee is. I'll tell you how it came about first. I used to have the uh, Samsung Galaxy Note. It's one of the largest phone on the market. Mm -hmm. And I'm a computer guy. And during my lunch hour, what I wanted to do was just watch a movie, watch a 30-minute video. I, you know, it's, it's within my time frame, and it worked perfectly. So as I'm eating this really big, juicy burger, I couldn't hold my phone. I couldn't eat and enjoy the food. I couldn't. It was just a waste of time. So then I figured, you know what? Let me make a little piece of plastic that holds it in place. And I did. It was, you know, a little makeshift thing. And then I thought, you know what? Why am I stopping at just this phone? Why don't I design a device that I can use for any phone, for any tablet? And I started looking on the market for what is already out there. And I wanted to see what I could do um, differently. And one of the things I found is a lot of people do one of two routes. They either A, buy a stand specific for that device. So if you buy, if you buy let's say, a, a stand for the iPad, it's been specifically designed and marketed for the iPad. It's not been designed or marketed for universality. So I wanted to do that. Basically make something functional, make it more than just a stand. I mean, you know, when you're paying X amount of dollars, especially in this economy at the moment, you want more than just one thing. And on a keychain, 
a lot of people have a lot of things on there. Uh, for a computer guy, I have a flash drive. At nighttime, I need a light to see where my keys are because I have... Oh, that's know, right. It does have a light. Correct. Yeah. So the standee puts all of those things together. Of course, the, the light and the USB flash drive are optional if people don't want to spend X more money than they have to. You know, plus people aren't technical like I am, so why would they want a flash drive? But anyway, standee was really just a a way to have a modern, portable, especially removable on your keychain because I don't want keys scratching, you know, a nice four hundred dollar tablet. So oh. it's also removable from that as well. You put a lot of thought into this. <laughs> I did, and and one of my biggest flaws is I'm technical. So when I describe a device like this, I'm like, well, it's a modular, this, that, that, and somebody goes, okay, so it's a stand that can do a lot of stuff. Yes. How long did it take you to develop the standy? It started in March of this year. Uh, I took two months off uh, in between just for waiting times because I had right. to wait for different molds to come in, uh, different uh, prototypes. Um, it's probably about since March minus two months. So, did you do your prototyping in China? No, I did not. I actually found it cheaper to do it in New York using Shapeways. Shapeways? Yes, they're a New York-based three D printing company. Oh. Each standee is eight separate pieces of plastic. Right, right. Now, for another company to do that, it's a lot of money because it's a lot of pieces. Uh, for Shapeways, it actually cost me per model anywhere between 70 to 80 dollars per whole unit of standee so all eight pieces for 80 bucks and i was able to make it out of like a different colors acrylic any type of uh material right right china asked me for about three to four hundred dollars per prototype now for anyone out there the standee nice little tidy name but i think it's a cool product and i did watch the video and that's why i think it's a cool product and it's been very nice to talk to Steven. I think he's been forthcoming. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what else to say. Anyway, but anyway, I think it's cool, man. And, and go check him out on Kickstarter, the standee, S-T-A-N-D-I-E. And if you can't find it, they always go to DJGrandpa.com where we'll post links for Steven and his project. And I wish him the best on Kickstarter. Dude, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Welcome, Mike Kennedy. Welcome to DJ Grandpa's favorite part of the show, man. The dreaded elevator pitch, man. <laughs> yeah. Now, I hope you're ready, man, because... I've been anticipating this all day. Okay, and you do know what an elevator pitch is. You wikied it or something like that, right? I, I am aware of it, yes. You know, for those of you who don't know, you know, I like to wax poetic at times. You know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm this big guy and I'm... Uh, I have my suit on and my, you know, it just, I'm just, just dressed so nicely and I'm walking into the building and somehow it's kind of late in the evening sometimes and sometimes people, they have a habit of getting into the building. I have the best security in the world, I thought. I paid them good money, but for some reason people keep getting in. And so then I go for the elevator and then this guy, you know, I don't even know who he is exactly. And then he bogarts, he puts his foot in the elevator and somehow he gets in and he says, hey, I'm Mike Kennedy and I'm like, Mike Kennedy, who? Why are you here, Mike? What do you what do you have for us? What what do you have to offer? What makes you different? What do you, how'd you get in the building? 
Well, hey, that's a really good question. I just happened to notice, in addition to this nice three-piece suit that you're wearing, you also got a Pac-Man trucker's cap on, so. I love the caps. I love the caps. Yeah, well, you know, you're grandpa, so you, you grew up playing uh, Pac-Man, I would imagine, and, and uh, Pong, probably, and the Atari, and, oh, and stuff yeah. like that, so I had to get I in here with asteroids. you. asteroids. Pac-Man, like you said. I got slot races. My favorite was, uh, man, you're getting me going all the way back, man. What I've done is I've gone out and, and recruited some of the best video gaming journalists that go back three decades. Wow. Uh, so these are guys uh, and people that uh, were writing about games uh, back in the early 80s and people that were writing about games in the 90s and then certainly today. And, and I'm bringing them all together into the pages of a single print and digital magazine that's going to be focused on uh, retro gaming because retro gaming is just such a huge, uh, it's not really a fad. I mean, it's a huge market. We've, we've, you know, the mobile games have come on. A lot of those are kind of quick pick up and play. Uh, it's pulling a lot of older people kind of back into the hobby and, and playing their games on their phones and their tablets. That game that I liked back in the day was Enduro, by the way. That was my favorite. Oh, on Atari, but, yeah. Yes, but what makes you relevant? You're saying retro. Retro means, doesn't retro mean like it's had its turn already? I mean, why, why are you back? Dude, retro is back in general. I mean, there's all these games are being rebooted and uh, uh, kind of put uh, reskinned. A lot of the old popular franchises that a lot of us grew up with oh, yeah, uh, are right. now being blasted back onto tablets and and uh, even you know the Xbox and the PlayStation stores. I mean, you can go in and, and get these new rebooted uh, retro games. And and so we're talking about all eras of gaming, past, present, and future, uh, but tying everything back historically so we can kind of educate and entertain uh, about uh, what has grown into the biggest entertainment industry in the world it surpassed you know music it's surpassing movies is what people are spending most of their entertainment dollar on so i know that uh, hurt my heart to pass music i just couldn't believe that as i saw that yeah. happening in the 90s 80s and but i see what you're saying because i have a lot of games on my show and, they, and a lot of them are kind of throwback ish so you might be yeah. right and no matter when you grew up gaming, if you were reading magazines, uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly back in the 90s, uh, which is, yeah. you know, or Game Fan, which are huge magazines back there. Back when video gaming magazines used to be like 200 pages thick. Do you remember those days? Oh, and, uh, yeah. And so we're kind of bringing that back. And, and no matter, uh, you know, you probably know if you're a gamer and you read magazines over the, the course of your, your gaming kind of history, you're probably going to know some of these people that, that are involved as contributors. So it's just going to be a fascinating collage of, of uh you know, video gaming, history, recollection. You know, we're going to be talking to, to some new developers and find out where they got their inspiration, what they grew up playing. And we're going to tie everything back. Everything's going to be tied back historically. Keep, um, but we will talk keep, about new you games. You keep so saying that tying all. it back, but isn't the print industry dead? Isn't the job of being a journalist dead? How are you going to... How yeah, gonna... man, but I mean, tell you what, there are some, uh, I mean, you look like it, uh, you know, I'm going to throw like Southern Living Magazine and stuff like that. I mean, it's got millions of subscribers. Game Informer's got uh, millions of subscribers uh, because it's tied to GameStop. Magazines are, I think people have discounted them too soon. I mean, you can get everything online, people think. But, you know, part of what we want to get in the magazine is, uh, you know, historical stuff and, and interviews and stuff you're not going to find online. You know, exclusive features that, you know, if you're in an airport and you're sitting, kicking back in your chair, waiting for your plane, you know, pulling out a magazine and just, you know, casually flipping the pages. There's something visceral about that that's missing in these days. And our demographic is going to be a little bit older. I mean, come on, DJ, Grandpa, you miss magazines. Don't tell me you don't. I mean, I love flipping the pages. I like seeing the ads and the full color ads. It's just, 
It's, it's just, you know, my gripe. You guys made me give up all that stuff and go to CDs and digital, and now you guys talking about cassettes and vinyl and now paper magazines. It's next all thing, coming back. Next thing you're gonna, you're gonna want me to have a weekly paper subscription again and pick that up in the driveway or something. I, I'm no, just... News is different, though. News you can get every day on, online, right? You know, you, we're not gonna report on a lot of news. That, that's sort okay. of a waste of time, This, but, uh, you know, it's gonna be stuff, you know, in-depth features, interviews, stuff that you that you're not going to retrospectives and right, and I, uh, I and uh, timeless it's timeless you know that's what this is these are going to be resources that people aren't going to just read and throw in the can okay. they're going to keep them as part of their collections i think and uh you know that's kind of the deal i think where we can come to consensus on this before i have to because i have to leave but i think where we can come to consensus is that you're lucky you're on kickstarter because that's the place for someone like you and you're talking about magazines and stuff like that retro and yeah. kickstarter is a gamer's paradise and you're talking about linking the gaming world with this whole print vision of yours so you yeah. you have an audience you, yeah. you and digital an we will have it available digitally as well so well, we well I didn't, both I, yeah, yeah I, I got you so yeah so i think right there you you may have a, a niche a market or something that you can develop, man. So I got you, man. I can understand that. So what I'll do, man, I'll go upstairs. I'll check out your site or whatever, smartphone or whatever. I'll talk to the community, do everything I can because it's a gamer's paradise on Kickstarter. They may, No one may believe me, but it is, man. I mean, all sorts of crazy games that never would have had the chance. And you know, and a lot of them are retro classics that are being brought back to life, and they're getting million, millions of dollars. You're it's, right, it's those 2D, 2 Pixel, 2 all of that, 4X, oh, yeah. all of that. So you're right, man. I, yeah. I want to thank you for, you know, coming in the elevator. I, I, I'm not, I can't thank you for breaking into the building, and I can't go that far, but you've shed a little light on the subject that I had discounted, man. So maybe I counted you out too soon, man. Yeah, so. I think so, man. Well, hey, you got a Pac-Man ball cap on. I mean, come on. I hate being played like that, man. You played me. You must have <laughs> listened to the show or something. No. You played me. No, but I will from here on out, man. I, uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've learned about you, so I, I will be listening uh, and uh, maybe get some insight on uh, on backing some uh, some things. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm going to have to get off here and Man, right, I hope was, you can uh, see your way out, man. If you need some help, there's a guard. You know, he's always at, well, he's supposed to be at the desk. But anyway, you understand what I'm saying. He let me in. I'm sure he'll let me out. I'm sold on retro, but dude, I must be getting old. Mike kept me in the elevator for over seven minutes. Now I'm going to be late for the credits. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks and to Bertram Zeke, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rufus.